All right. Good morning, Forest Park. <laughs> How you guys doing? People problems, people problems. All right. Hey, we're in part two of this series, People Problems. Excited about bringing today's message to you. If you are newer to Forest Park, maybe you haven't been here in a while, and you haven't yet used the uh, Follow Along with the Message Version app, it's a great way for you to follow along each week. You can download it. It is absolutely free. And then you can follow along with the scriptures and the points of the message, etc. And you can save that. You can email it to yourself, whatever you want to do. It's just a great way of keeping up with uh, what we're talking about. Let's jump into part two of people problems. You know, strong opinions are easy for me. I've always enjoyed passionate conversations, defending my views, and I actually find nothing wrong with holding firm opinions. It's always good to know what you believe and defend your beliefs with well-reasoned whys. Unfortunately, having strong opinions wasn't always enough for me. For years, I was bent on persuading others to agree with my opinions. From my perspective, if something was true, I thought it was my responsibility to convince others of the weakness and silliness of their opinion. Because I reasoned if I'm right, and there was rarely a doubt in my mind, then why would I want to leave you in your ignorance? I had the responsibility to lead you from the darkness of deception into the light of clarity. And over time, what began as a small circle containing what you and I, both of us, must believe expanded into a large circle containing many musts and shoulds and oughts and why nots and everything in between. The more I learned, the larger my circle of non-negotiables grew, which means I collected more and more reasons to debate more and more people. And when Lana and I began dating, one of the traits Lana detested about me was my relentless desire to correct everyone around me. If I held to an opinion different than yours, it was only a matter of time before you heard my opinion. I was going to figure out a way to get my opinion into the conversation, whether that was over a lunch or whether that was after church or whether that was you know, in a conversation sometime throughout the week, I figured out a way to let you know how I felt. Any of you similar to that? It's okay to admit it. Okay, there's a few of your hands raised. Do you know people like I've described? Okay. They can be annoying, can't they? Let's be honest. They can turn a dinner conversation into an argument about the government. They can manipulate watching a movie into a debate about history they can turn Christmas shopping into a nightmare about the ills of marketing Christmas and why we should shut down the sweatshops in other countries who are making a profit you know, off of the Christmas commercialization. To them, everything is a non-negotiable, and they will argue until you are convinced or they are exhausted. And far and away, the top two most toxic, divisive subjects, politics and religion. Exactly right. And there is no person more obnoxious than a religious person with strong political views. Anybody know what I mean? Yeah. Several of you have an image of that person right now in your mind. Some of you have a name, you have a face. And, and here's why these topics are so divisive. It is assumed by those who argue and fuss and rant and rave that one side is correct and one side is wrong. 
These people live in a black and white world, very little grays or light blues or off-whites. And of course, the side that is correct is their side. And it typically goes a little further than that. It is assumed by those who argue and fuss and rant and rave that everyone would be better off if their side won the debate and everybody adopted their views. It's an exclusivist, narrow way of thinking. Basically, what's being said is the world is a mess because of them, whoever them is. And if more and more people held to my view, then our world would be better and better. And this persuasion is held by both liberals and conservatives, so I'm not picking a side. Both believe their view is the most correct view. And we live in a world where whichever side you take, Entire social media platforms and news media outlets feed you additional information to support your views and connect you with more and more people who believe your way. And over time, you become convinced the smartest people in the world are on your side and the poor idiots sit on the other side. And there's a reason for that. There are groups and individuals who thrive and profit from our division. As long as we are divided, they remain in power. They do not want us to link up. They do not want us to minimize our differences and maximize our agreements because their power is fueled by our distinctions. And both politicians and preachers weld this power. The world system, we talked about it last week, if you remember. The world system, a.k.a. the devil, fears unity. John 8, we're told Satan is described as the father of lies. Revelation 12, 10, Satan is described as the accuser of people. And nothing divides people into two opposing sides faster than lies and accusations. Proverbs 6, we're told six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, and a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. In the New Testament, we're encouraged to be whatever we got to do. Make sure you maintain unity. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 10. Now, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. Don't be divided into rival groups. Don't be divided into rival groups. Instead, be restored with the same mind and the same purpose. Mark 3, 24, 25. A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse, and a house torn apart by divisions will collapse. One of the secrets to the power and the influence of the early church, unity. They had one heart. They had one mind. Now, don't miss this. This is very important as I set this message up. In the New Testament, in the early church, when the first Christians began to link together and began to follow Christ, there was plenty of cultural diversity. There was plenty of political diversity. Even in their beliefs, they were diverse. Not everybody worshiped the same, practiced faith the same, or understood God the same way. 
In fact, some Christians were raised Jewish, and they began to follow Christ, and some people were raised pagan, and they began to follow Christ. And you know what? Each of them brought their own customs and their own ideas of who God is and what God should be like, and they were trying to understand Jesus, who was the personification of God himself, and God wrapped in flesh, and they were trying to mix all of this together, and it became challenging. Yet overall, they were unified. How in the world can you bring all the politics that they had and cultural diversity and ideas of paganism and Jewish customs and bring all of that stuff together and still maintain unity? Because at the core, they only had a few absolutes, and they respected cultural diversity that other people brought to the, to the faith. In fact, they were so shocked that God accepted other cultures and different value systems and different ways of living. They just were basking in the grace and the love of God. The early church did everything possible to widen the doors and elongate the tables, making room for more and more diverse people. The church ought to be completely diverse. It ought to be filled with people who have different ideas and different ways of worship and different ways of thinking, and all of us trying to figure out how we become unified with all our different ways. That's the early church. That's the way the church ought to be today. Yet somehow, we've evolved into 2023 with this massive religious machine with hundreds of denominations and each one believing that it represents the truth more clearly. And we fight and bicker. Let's bring it down, all these big ideas. Let's bring it down to where you live. Let's bring it down to where I live. Here's where I want to go today. You have people in your life with whom you disagree. I have people in my life with whom I disagree. Maybe you have a person you live with or you live beside or you work with or maybe you attend church with them and you have radically different political views. In fact, if the you know, vote in our nation was held today, you would vote this way and that person would vote that way and you've tried to convince her and she's tried to convince you. Maybe you like this translation of Scripture and this person likes this translation of Scripture. Maybe you like to worship with your hands up and they like to worship sitting quietly. Maybe the person is hard to please, and every time you disagree with them or say anything opposite of what they believe, they get very sensitive and very offended. Maybe they just are one of those people that's just hard to like. You ever had people in your life that were just difficult to like? No matter what you tried to do, she just she's difficult. He's difficult. What do you do? I mean, do you ignore them? Do you distance yourself from them? Is it okay to refuse to be around that particular couple? I mean, as a Christian, what is the proper way to handle differences? Well, today I want to do everything I can to take these big ideas I introduced to you at the front of this message and kind of bring them down to the bottom shelf, if you will, and just hand them to you in the most practical way I know. I want you to hear me very well. I'm going to help you today. If you want to get along with people, and I hope that you do, if you want to reduce friction between you and that neighbor, between you and that person you're sitting beside of right now, you don't look at them, they'll think you're talking about them, just you know what I'm saying. If you want to become a person that harmonizes with people better, serves people better, loves people better, then I want you to be very careful attention to the next few minutes because I'm going to help you with this. One of the best things you can do for yourself is invest in understanding people. Most of us do not understand each other. We talk over one another. 
We, we, we judge one another. We laugh at one another. We ignore one another. We dislike one another. We use one another to get what it is we want out of life. But few of us take the time to find out what people want, what people fear, why people act the way they do, and how to best communicate with people. Too many of us are simply people confused. And it is the single greatest reason we have people problems. We simply do not understand one another. And we don't understand people because we don't understand ourselves. We are self-ignorant. Therefore, we are people ignorant. And our people ignorance leads to friction between us and other people. So here's what I want to do over the next few minutes. I want to give you the basic 101 on people. I'm going to narrow it down to its essence, if you will, the most simple paint-by-the-number understanding of people that I possibly can in a sermon, all right? And this applies to everyone you meet, in a coffee shop, church, at work, in our homes. It applies to you. It applies to me. And when I say this, it's going to come across kind of sideways. It's going to feel a little hard. You're not going to want to necessarily accept it. In fact, you might even debate it in your mind. But I'm telling you, this is at its core, this is how people are. Are you ready? People are selfish. That's all there is to it. Listen to me very carefully. Life is difficult. And people are trying to survive. There are people sitting in this room. There are people watching online. Life is hard for them. And they're doing everything they can to get up tomorrow morning, go to work, take their kids to school, survive, pay their bills, take care of their children, survive maybe a very difficult marriage, maybe a job that's very hard. Maybe they got things going on in the background of their life. And life is just rough. People are doing everything they can to survive. And let me break this concept, people are selfish, down to three things. One, people are preoccupied with themselves. Life's hard. The people you interact with, they are self-consumed. Their schedule, their comfort, their family, their success, their looks, their dreams, their place and significance in this world. Every person you meet is consumed with what he's doing, where she's going, how he's looking, how she's feeling, what he is accomplishing. Every single person. You need to know that about people. They're self, selfish. They are, what does that mean? It means, one, people are preoccupied with themselves. This next part is gold. I wish I'd have known this years ago. People see you not as you are, but as they are. Don't take it personal. People do not look at the world and each other through a glass. They look at it through a mirror. They see themselves in you. Let me give you an example. That person in your life who puts people down, it's because internally they feel stupid, they feel ugly, they feel insignificant, and they see themselves in other people. And it would do you well to imagine every person you're interacting with as looking at themselves when they're interacting with you. They see themselves in you. You know what people are thinking when they're interacting with you? They're thinking thoughts like this. No matter what they're talking about, here's what they're thinking in the background. How do I look right now? What does this person think of me? 
How can this person help me get where I want to get in life? Or things like, man, this person is taking up a lot of my time. How do I get away from this person? How do I get, no matter how they're smiling, interacting, they're thinking thoughts that relate to them. People see you not as you are, but as they are. Just know that. Number three, in the people are selfish idea. (laughs) You stop worrying about what people think of you when it occurs to you people aren't thinking of you. They're thinking of themselves. When this basic information is understood and accepted, you treat people differently, especially people with whom you disagree. Why? Because you stop taking disagreements personally. You quit thinking people are out to make your life miserable. Most people are not out to make your life miserable. They're so consumed with themselves and surviving, they aren't thinking about you. They're not trying to make your life miserable. They're trying to make their life livable. They're just trying to get through the day. And when you finally realize that people are the same everywhere, and you realize that they're thinking about themselves and you're thinking about yourself, you quit taking everything personal. You quit thinking people are out to make your life miserable. You finally realize you and people are the same because you are a people. And like other people, we're occupied with ourselves. Like other people, we see ourselves in other people. Like other people, we're so busy worrying about ourselves, we don't think about other people in selfless ways. We think about other people in selfish ways. Basically, people problems stem from you and I being a people. Now, I want to show you in Scripture how good people can disagree with each other because good people are occupied with what they want, what's best for them, their agenda, their vision, their goals. People who have good character, people who are passionate, people who are convinced that they're doing the right thing but see an issue entirely opposite, and because they do, they have to separate from one another. And both can be equally right and equally wrong at the exact same time. And until you understand how people think, how you think, you will always fight people rather than get along with people. I want to show you this in Acts chapter 15. Let me set this up for you. This story that I'm going to tell you takes place right before Paul leaves on his second missionary journey. While he and Barnabas are putting their affairs in order and getting the details of their plan together, like good people do, A disagreement arises between Paul and Barnabas, two good men, two godly men, two men gifted to do great things, but they disagree with one another so much that they cannot serve together, they have to separate. And here's the dispute they had. Paul and Barnabas had this guy in the middle named John Mark. John Mark wanted to go with Paul and Barnabas on the second missionary journey But Paul didn't want John Mark to go. And Paul didn't want John Mark to go because the first missionary journey, John Mark left them in the middle of the the journey. And that made Paul upset. So Barnabas says, well, we're going again. Let's take John Mark again. And Paul says, we're not taking John Mark. He left us last time, and he's not going to leave us again. Let me show you this from Scripture. Acts 15, beginning at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit all the brothers and sisters in every city where we preach the Lord's word. Let's see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him. Paul insisted that they shouldn't take him along since he had deserted them in Pamelithia and hadn't continued with them in their work. 
their argument became so intense that they went their separate ways. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and left. This was a heated exchange. Voices were raised. Emotions were high. It became intense. So intense, they could not settle the issue, and they had to separate from one another and go their separate ways. Why? Because back in Acts 13, it says, Paul and his companions sailed from Pathos to Perga and Pamphylia. John deserted them there and returned to Jerusalem. So for whatever reason, fear, anxiety, immaturity, whatever, John Mark left Paul and his team, so Paul had to move forward without the assistance of John Mark. And this hurt and disappointed and probably angered Paul. And I'm confident in saying after this encounter, Paul was finished with John Mark, so he was like, Barnabas suggests John Mark's go with him on the second missionary journey, and Paul's like, no way. I'm not getting left by John Mark again. I don't trust him. He left me when I needed him the most before, and he'll probably do it again. He can stay here and take care of things on the home front, but I don't want him with me. So the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas became so intense, they could not reach a resolution. They had to separate and move on their own separate ways. What does this tell me? This is what it tells me. You can be a good person and disagree with another good person. You can be a good person and separate from another good person. And you can be a good person and be selfish and self-focused and hurt one another every now and then. Why? Because anytime you bring people together, there will be problems. Even when you bring good people together. And what I find particularly interesting in this exchange is both Paul and Barnabas were competent in their decisions. Paul thought he was doing the right thing by not allowing John Mark to go. Barnabas thought he was doing the right thing by saying, no, let's give John Mark another chance. Paul's a great man of God. Barnabas is a great man of God. John Mark is in the middle. Neither of them could settle the dispute. So what did they do? They separated. Now what's interesting to me is that we don't know all the details of the story, but we know enough to know this. Neither Paul nor Barnabas insulted one another, ridiculed one another, name-called one another. Neither of them put the other person down. They simply said, I have a difference of opinion than you. You have a difference of opinion than mine. We're never going to be able to settle this dispute. We have to move our separate ways. Now, if you know the story, eventually they reunited, but that's down the road. A few years later, all of it came back around, but it didn't in this moment. They separated. Very important you see that, and here's why that's important. You're never going to be able to maintain your opinion when it's different than somebody else's opinion and go your separate ways if you are consumed with making everybody around you happy, making everybody around you pleased. You cannot hold strong opinions and separate if you need to, if you feel the urge to make everyone like you, make everybody comfortable around you, make everybody happy, make everybody pleased. Both Paul and Barnabas were content to stand their ground and let the opinions of the matter fall. Paul didn't say, well, I don't want to make John, Mark, and Barnabas upset with me, so I'll compromise and I'll do what I don't believe is best, but I'll do it so everybody's happy. Barnabas didn't say, well, I don't want Paul to be mad with me, so I'll let John Mark stay here and I'll just go with Paul. No. 
People pleasing is unhealthy and it needs to be treated. Frank Viola in his book, 48 Laws of Spiritual Power, lists a few prominent signs of people pleasing. I want you to see whether or not you struggle with some of these people pleasing tendencies, okay? The first one is you hide your real opinion and outwardly you agree with others. You hide your real opinions and you outwardly agree with other people. But internally, you disagree. But you'll go ahead and go along with the rest of the people because you want to keep everybody pleased. Second sign is you over-apologize even for things that aren't your fault. The third sign is you feel responsible for how other people feel. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Here's three more signs. You find it almost impossible to say no. So you agree to things, you'll say yes to things, you'll jump into things, you'll get yourself all wrapped up in doing stuff. It's just almost impossible for you to say no. Number five, you need people to praise you, to feel relaxed and content. You just need somebody to tell you, hey, you look good. You need somebody to tell you, hey, you did well. You need somebody to, to praise you, somebody. If they don't tell you that you feel anxious, you feel nervous, you've got to have somebody's feedback to let you know that they're happy with you. The sixth sign is you abandon your personal values to avoid conflict. You kind of let some of your values slide so that you won't get into an argument. You won't get into a fight. You'll even agree with somebody else's value if that means the peace is maintained. So let me, let me help you with this. Three things, big things. Number one, you got to lose your need to please everybody. People problems. You got to lose your need to please everybody. Listen, attempting to please everyone is an attempt to control how people feel. You cannot control how other people feel. Many of the people you're trying to please can't control their own feelings. What makes you think you're going to be able to control their feelings? Feelings are like weather. Every 10 to 15 minutes, they change. You cannot reach into somebody else and help them feel a certain way about you. Now, why do we try to please everybody? Why do we try to control how people feel? Well, this goes back to a healthy self-awareness. Why do we make, try to make everybody happy? I thought this was really interesting. Psychotherapist Amy Morin provides two solid reasons. The first one is fear. Some of us are simply afraid. Some of us had so much conflict when we were children that um, we want to do everything we can, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, to make everybody around us happy. And we are afraid that in our current world that people are going to be unhappy. We are afraid of conflict. So we think if I can make everybody happy with me, then I won't have to deal with the uncomfortable feelings that come with people being upset with me. Do you see how that is self-focused? It's, it's, not, it's not that I really want you to be happy. It's just that when you're happy, I feel better. It's not really about you. It's about me. It's a mirror. I see myself in you. Often people pleasers fear rejection. They fear abandonment. Again, we see each other through mirrors, not through glasses. The second reason we try to please everybody is learned behavior. Sometimes our people pleasing grew out of our childhood. If you had parents who fought often, you might have learned the only way to keep the peace 
is to make everybody around you happy. So you're always trying to make mama happy. You're always trying to make daddy happy. Why? Because if daddy wasn't happy, nobody was happy. If mama wasn't happy, nobody in the house was happy. So you learned as a child to make mom and dad happy because if mom and dad are happy, then we'll get a good, you know, have a good night. If mom and dad are happy, we'll be able to do the things that we had planned on the weekend. So you learned that it's your job to make everybody around you happy and you took all of that into your marriage, into your friendships today, and here you are, 30 years old, trying to make mom and dad happy. They're just in other people. Learn behavior. Do you see how it's really not about the other person? It's really about you seeing yourself in other people. It's not that I want you happy. It's just that when you're not happy, I'm not happy. So I got to make you happy so I feel better about myself. I feel better about my life. Trying to please other people is not about you. You are looking in a mirror and doing whatever you can do to make your life better through trying to make other people's lives better. I know this stings. It stings when I realize this about myself. And this is going to hurt when I say it, but the truth sets us free. It makes us mad first, and then it sets us free. It hurts us, then it frees us. Here's what I've learned about me. Let's see if this fits you. If this shoe fits, you know, you wear it. If it doesn't, pass it down. Somebody else's foot will stuff it in, you know. If you were happy and peaceful and comfortable, no matter how the people around you felt, you probably would rarely think about other people. Because it's all about how we feel. You know how I see that right now? Around our world every single day, People are famished. Food is rare for millions of people. Bombs are exploding constantly. Refugees are everywhere. War is going on, incessant war, constantly 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People are escaping countries. Murder is happening. Genocide is happening around our world. Haven't thought hardly anything about it until it blows up in Israel, and all of a sudden we're glued to the TV, what's going on, because it affects us now. Before, we were fine going out to eat, going to amusement parks, having our life, enjoying social media, TVs, movies, Netflix, going and all the things. As soon as something happens on the news, brings it to our attention, suddenly we are concerned about what's going on in the world. Are we going to go to World War III? Why? Because now it bothers us. It's hard to accept but at the core of who we are, we are selfish. And when we realize that, that is the first step toward the big religious word called repentance. Because then we say, God, I really am selfish, and I really don't think about other people. I think about myself. Help me. The people problems are much more close to home than I actually thought they were. The second thing in this is that we got to admit that our perspective is distorted. I want to show you this scripture in Matthew 7. Look at this. Jesus is speaking, and he says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt out to you. Why do you see the splinter that's in your brother or sister's eyes, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye, you deceive yourselves. 
Now notice this. What does it sound as if this person is caring about? It sounds as if this person's caring about the splinter that is in the eye of their friend, right? Jesus said, no, no, no. You are so deceived. You don't care about the splinter that's in the eye of the other person. You got a log in your own eye. Deal with yourself first. Let me tell you why we can't judge other people. Because to judge someone perfectly requires perfect sight. No flaws, no sins, no wounds, no prejudice, nothing. And we are not perfect. We are deeply flawed people. We see each other through our own insecurities, our own impure motives, our own unhealed wounds, our own unmet needs, our own misplaced anger. You know what those are? Those are the logs sticking out of our eyes. So when I see you, I judge you through all the things that are in my eyes. Therefore, not only is it unkind to judge someone, it is unwise to judge them. Because you don't have clear perspective. You can't see a person's heart. You can't see their motive. You can't see their intent. The only thing you see is the behavior, and you want to judge the behavior when you've got your own issues in your own life. How many times have we as parents, some teacher comes down hard on our kids, or a coach comes down hard on our kids, or a neighbor comes down hard on our kids, and we want to go defend our children? Why? Because we know their heart. I know that he said this, I know he did, but, but I want you to know my kid is like this. I want you to know their heart. I want you to know their intent. I want you to know he's a good child. What are you talking about? You're talking about their heart. You see your child differently than everybody else sees your child. That's the reason the Pharisees could pick the rock up and judge the woman caught in the act of adultery, but Jesus comes along and defends her and causes them to drop their rocks and leave the scene. Why? Because Jesus could see through that woman's behavior and could see her heart, and the Pharisees could only see the woman's behavior. They had logs in their eyes, and they couldn't see her for who she really was. Everything you perceive about other people Everything you perceive about other people is being poured through you first. Your values, your beliefs, your family, your trauma, your religion, and some religion is toxic. And by the time all that trickling through you is completed and it comes out the bottom like a filter, it's pretty ugly. Because it has gone through our own beliefs, our own wounds, our own struggles, our own sins, our own prejudice, our own racism, our own wounds of the past. All of that has been trickling through, and by the time it comes out, the glass is pretty muddy water. And then we judge them through that glass of water. So do you got a verse for that? Of course I do. Titus 1.15, everything is clean to those who are clean. But nothing is clean to those who are corrupt and without faith. See, when you are corrupt and you are without faith, you know what you do? You have a tendency to project that onto other people. You have a tendency to think other people around you are also corrupt, also sinful, also wicked. But something happens when you allow God to do surgery on you. Something happens when the log is removed from your eye, 
when you're clean, when you're trauma-free, when your wounds are healed, when love is forward. You know what happens? I promise you, when you go through that process and God begins to pick those things out of your eyes and begins to bathe you in love and bathe you in mercy, you will see so few splinters in other people's eyes. It changes you entirely. When you address your own issues, you are much less prone to judging others. Much more patient, much more loving, much more gentle, much more gracious, much more accommodating. When you allow God to deal with your own issues first, log comes out of your eye. 1 Corinthians 13, look at this. Love puts up with all things. Trusts in all things. Hopes for all things, endures all things. Basically, love will change how you interact with people. Third big one I gotta give you is accept that two people can hold different opinions and both be right at the same time. This the church needs to understand right here. Two people can hold different views and both be right at the exact same time. There was a serious issue within the early church, and the issue divided a lot of Christians. And let me tell you what the issue was. Last big story I'm going to give you. There was a common practice among the pagan temple worshipers of animal sacrifice. They offered up these animals to their pagan gods. Then they would take the animal that they offered up as a burnt offering, and they would provide the local meat market with all the animals that they burned in these pagan temples. And they would sell it for public consumption. Some Christians had significant problems with consuming the meat. They felt that if they bought the meat and ate the meat, they were participating in pagan worship. It bothered them. Other Christians didn't have a problem with it at all because they knew that there were no other gods except the God of Israel. So they bought the meat, butchered it, made stew out of it, moved on. It became a heated debate in the early church. You had these people on one side going, you can't eat the meat offered to idols. And you had other people on the other side going, yes, we can. And you came up with the first non-pagan eating meat Baptist church and the second, you know, eating meat Baptist church on the other side of town. And you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're conservative. No, you're liberal. You're the problem with the world. No, you're the problem with the world and all that kind of stuff. That's what was going on. So Paul's wisdom gets in the middle of this. You can read all about it in 1 Corinthians 8. Here's the gist of what Paul says. Paul instructs that if by eating the meat your conscience is bothered, you feel guilty, you feel condemned, then by all means, don't eat the meat. Because if you do, for you, it is sinful because you're violating your conscience. But... If you can eat the meat with a clear conscience because you know the meat was the same before it was offered to an idol and after it was offered to an idol, then by all means eat the meat and enjoy it. Makes tacos, pass it out, okay? So Paul shows that the exact same act can be sinful for some people and not sinful for other people. So, Scott, is consuming meat first offered to idols sinful or not? Settle the debate. Should I go to that church or that church? Which one? I would say it depends. Everything is not black and white. 
Everything is not yes or no. Everything is not right or wrong. Truth is complicated and nuanced and multi-layered and not the same for everybody. This concept continues to trip up many Christians today, and it's because we lack maturity. Let me illustrate it like this. If I brought up my three-year-old Elliot, Ashlyn and Josh's little son, Elliot, I brought him up on the stage, and I said, Elliot, tell me, is it light or dark outside? He might have to go to the door, open it up, and look outside, and he would say, it's light. And he would be correct. But if I called a friend of mine in Beijing, China, right now, and I said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you ask your three-year-old to look outside and tell me if it's light or dark outside? And he would look outside, he would say, it's dark. And he would be correct. Now, I want you to imagine the two three-year-olds get on the phone and they try to convince each other if it's light or dark outside. And one would say, it's light outside. And the other three-year-old, no, it's dark outside. And the third, no, it's light outside. Uh-uh, it's dark outside. They are both correct and they are both wrong at the exact same time because it is light here but dark there. So the correct answer is it depends on where you're positioned on the globe. But they cannot comprehend that our planet is spherical and we're moving around the sun and it's always light somewhere and it's always dark somewhere. So since they are not mature enough to understand it, they simply argue about who is right and I just describe most politics in a lot of sermons. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. The scripture says, no, the scripture says, no, the scripture says, no, the scripture says. Well, we'll start our church. We'll start our church. Well, we'll do it our way. Well, we'll do it our way. Two, three-year-olds arguing over who's right. All right. One verse for the road and I'm done. Philippians 4, 5. Let your what? Let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. This verse hit me a couple years ago. I was reading and it just, I don't know for what reason, it just, I know the reason. I shouldn't say I don't know. I know the reason. It hit me really hard. Different translations kind of put it a little bit differently. One of the other translations says, let your gentleness be evident to all people. And as I was thinking through what I said at the beginning, how I used to argue with people and fight with people and my opinion, and I'm going to tell you if you're right or wrong, and I love to do all that kind of stuff. It really hit me one day as I was reading this, is that when I'm finished with my opinion giving, would people say I'm gentle? Because Paul says that our gentleness should be evident to all people. You may hold to a very firm belief but are you gentle when you give that belief? When, when, I, when, I, when I discuss the Bible, am I gentle? When I disagree with someone, am I gentle? When I discuss politics or theology, here's a big one, or sports, <laughs> say lay off the sports, am I gentle? Overall, when it comes to others, am I considerate, kind, easygoing, patient, and understanding. 
You see, you could hold to strong opinions. We need confident people. Please hear me. I'm not saying don't have confidence. We need confident people with clear opinions. That's a good thing. But remember, as you hold and as you express your opinions, there's a person on the other side of the issue. A person who should be loved and respected and honored. And the way you express your opinion matters more than the opinion you express. And when you're finished expressing your opinion, would the other person who heard your opinion say, well, we disagree, but she's gentle. We see it differently, but she's loving. Well, I don't necessarily think she's right, but I love her heart. I love her attitude. You see, I would rather, I'd rather my character be formed than my opinion formed. So, as we close today, bring the person you, you kind of have the most issue with, bring them to your mind right now. In light of what we discuss, what needs to change? How might you be misperceiving them because of the own, your own log in your eye? How might you be judging them too harshly? How might you be seeing yourself in them? And you're kind of getting a reflection of your own character issues and your own attitude and your own, how? Maybe you simply need to separate from them. That's okay. We don't always get along with people. Paul says in another verse, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Sometimes you can't be at peace with all people because the other person won't allow it. But to the best of your ability, don't name call, don't insult don't argue, don't insinuate online, leave it alone. Be loving, be gentle, and let that gentleness be evident to all people. People problems are real, but we can insert love and grace and mercy and understanding people in the middle of it all and diffuse a lot of that acid. All right? Let's pray. Father, I know how hard it is to get along with people. I know how hard it is to get along with people because I'm sometimes a difficult person to get along with. I see some of my own selfish tendencies and the way that I color things a certain way or I look through a mirror, really, when I see other people sometimes. I project onto them my own weaknesses. I project onto them my own sins. I project onto them my own insecurities, my own wounds, my own trauma. I got a log in my eye. Father, we at Forest Park want to learn how to interact with people better and be more healthy and be more Christ-like. Teach us what that means. Let this truth of this, these verses, the, the argument that Paul and, and, and Barnabas had and the lessons that we can learn about pleasing, let all that rest inside of us and let it change us from the inside out. Thank you for bringing these things to our attention in this message and in this series challenge us to become different people, people who love one another, people who serve one another, and in the middle of all the diversity and cultural diversity and even beliefs that are different and political diversity, we're still unified because love holds us together. Thank you for your grace and mercy in our life and loving us when we were unlovable. May we return that to other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, I just really appreciate what Pastor Scott has to say today. I think one of the biggest things for Christians to take away is that God has called us 
not to win arguments, but God has called us to love people in a gentle way as Christ loved us. So I think putting that perspective in our lives when we have issues with other people is so important. To see that I'm not greater than you because I have a different opinion and you're not less than me, but we can see one issue differently and still love one another even through our differences. That's what we're called to do. It's called to love people in spite of our differences. That's what I have to constantly preach and tell myself every time I sit down and talk to a Duke fan. So Thank you guys so much for being here. I have two quick announcements before we let you go when we celebrate baptism. Number one is that this Saturday night at 7 p.m. we have our night of worship. Our band's going to come. We're going to have about six to eight songs. We're going to have communion. It'll take about an hour, hour, 15 minutes of just being able to stop, pause, reflect, and worship. You may want to come in and just bring your journal and sit and just journal and pray as we sing and worship together. This is a great opportunity to bring your family, your friends, your coworkers that may not go anywhere to come worship with you at our night of worship. And even if they do go to another church, they can still be a part because it's on a Saturday night. So we'd love to see you, your friends, your family here this Saturday night at 7 p.m. for a night of worship. Number two is that if you're new here or you've been coming for a while and you haven't connected, we'd love to get to know you better. There's a physical new here card in the seat back in front of you. If you take it, fill it out, and drop it by the new here area on your way out, we have a gift for you. If you just want to do a virtual copy, though, you can go to that website right there, do the same thing, go to the new here area, take a gift. That's also a place we'd love to connect with you and answer any questions you may have about Forest Park, who we are, what we stand for, how we do it. That's the place to go to get your questions answered. Uh, guys, thank you so much for being here. I would really encourage you, instead of just bolting to your car to enjoy your Sunday, to actually stay in the main lobby and come with us as we celebrate two people taking their next step in baptism. We're excited to celebrate that together now. So we're going to do that in the lobby. Thank you guys so much for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.